0: This story is for Huxley. Although I have to say that the story is hardly my own. Mostly I'm reading from a note that was left for me in a cardboard box, written in a faint and semi-permanent liquid that seemed to be made from powder and a little bit of water. I did try to keep the note, but the, the writing faded to invisibility over the course of a day. Luckily I remember its contents. They're fixed in my memory for you don't forget easily a note from a moth. I don't think they write notes every day, not as far as I know. Maybe Huxley knows more. I had arrived at Huxley's house about two in the afternoon. It's down a rough track that runs out somewhere in rainforest, and I drove down at a guess because I was simply curious. And then there was a clearing with this charming timber cottage in it, And Huxley, who I'd never met before, was on the veranda with a cardboard box. "'Quick, come,' he said. And I ran over and looked into the box, and there was a moth, grey or rather silver in colour, with the luster of an ancient Greek coin. He was coated in fine white hairs, the moth, that is, not Huxley. It was as if a mink had been transformed into an insect. And instead of normal antennae, he had these two flamboyant black feathers sticking out of his noggin. It was the most elegant apparatus I've ever seen for receiving sensory information from the world around you. Now Huxley had just saved the moth's life. It had been ensnared in a spider web and the predator itself was climbing up its own construction one leg at a time towards the stuck moth to eat it but Huxley intervened. It was as if Huxley hadn't even had time to second-guess himself, to question his bravery or courage. It was instinct. He swooped in to rescue the moth, and now this moth wasn't in a cobweb, but in a cardboard box. On his back, no doubt contemplating the life that he might now have. "'Maybe you could take him,' Huxley said. "'If you like animals. You seem like you like animals.' Oh, yeah, I suppose I do. Yeah, I could take him, I replied. He could meet my patty melons. He's supposed to be on the moon now, Huxley told me. Oh, is he? Maybe he didn't go because of all the lockdown restrictions and stuff, I replied. Moths don't know it's lockdown, Huxley said. Yeah, I guess not. That seems true. Such was our conversation. I took the moth home and put him in a nice spot where he could watch the moon rise, just in case. I don't know much about the migration of moths, but a tremendous lunar journey, just as the winter was beginning, seemed pretty enviable to me. And as I myself lay down to sleep that night, I thought that maybe I'd suggest to go with the moth tomorrow. Like he could guide me to the moon. I thought that would be a pretty great adventure. But in the morning, the cardboard box was empty. On the writing desk, there was the note, in that homemade ink that I suppose was derived from the dust off the moth's wings. It was arranged in squiggly letters, words as curly as ferns, the colour of smoke. This is what the moth wrote. I am grateful for your hospitality and that your friend saved my life. As I lay bound in that spider's silken cage, I looked back over all I've done with my life and felt like I'd let myself down. But now you've given me another chance. So I've decided I'm going to try some new things. I have to admit that I didn't go to the moon this year because I was sad. I've been a little bit heartbroken, you see. Perhaps I shall tell you all the full story about that another time, but but for now I have decided that, although I've left it too late to go off to the moon, I'm going to travel to the next best place now. Norway. I'll find a nice hut somewhere in a forest of conifers and flutter around all the lights each one like a tiny planet in itself, and enthralled in their glow and glare, I think I shall find new dreams for myself. And this, I must say, seems better than being in a spider's belly. Thank you all, farewell, and see you in spring. Yours sincerely, Merton the Moth. Hello Huxley, if you're listening, and welcome to my little storytelling show called In a Train Carriage, Going Nowhere. This is my first full winter in Tasmania for nearly 10 years. In the meantime, I've had plenty of moments of winter, but not the whole stretch, not for a while now. In Tassie, you can get winter conditions all year round, so I haven't felt like I've totally been missing out. You know, I've still experienced a heap of rain and wind and darkness and loneliness and plenty of snow even. But to abide the whole season is to bring out a new set of intuitions. Already I am remembering that it can take courage. That winter can be scary. It does strange things to your imagination. The echoes and the shadows are different. You need to be attentive. And you sleep a lot. I think in order to gird yourself against certain... Demons and monsters, like the mysterious forces that we used to speak of when we belonged to our tribes and told stories around the fireplace. I haven't forgotten them, and it's good to face them once again. I'm alone, smothered in darkness like a thick molasses. Cold envelops the train in the manner of an old coat, I marvel at the sinews of the eucalypts, which sway wildly over the yard but mostly don't break, just throw a few bouquets on the front deck every night, as if in praise for some great performance I'm making. Portions of gum and waddle and cherry go into the firepot. Their beautiful colours, tan and gold and pale pink, convert into heat and keep this shack habitable. Some mornings a silvery light pushes back the shadows, but some nights the moon seems lost, and it's like the stars have forgotten their shamanic dance, and Venus has gone missing. But we must not forget that the planets are wanderers too. The stars, everything in the solar system. It was summer once, like a million years ago or something. I remember a time when I took the bus to the coast with a couple of friends. A sign dared all contenders to swim the pier, if you've got it in you. We set up tents in the yard, crisscrossed logs and lit them, sizzled onion and zucchini on a pan balanced precariously on that smouldering stack. A battery-powered radio played songs whose melodies would forever suggest that summer's itinerary as if the rhythm was borrowed from the journeys we took along back roads. The sun set through the banksia's branches with a kind of metallurgical magic, like it was all coming out of some great forge. And then the sky faded into a soft blue, and we slowly turned the volume of the radio down to nothing. All night I was taking notes, Grace said, "What are you going to do with it all when you're done?" I said nothing. Nothing, I said. It was yet another night in which I confused everyone present. I slept on the ground outside, but because I was under the sway of the sorcery of a youthful temperament, I yearned exclusively for the sky. The blood was fizzing in my veins. And if that was a lyric from one of the summer's songs, then it's because I destined it to be so. I was doing the lonely work of a meteor. I was an aeroplane. I was a raptor. Like I said, I upset everyone. Where are you going? Grace asked in the morning. Nowhere, I said. In that case, where have you already gone? First of all, it was like the afterlife had muscled its way into my dreams. Then my dreams had become so dominant that they'd supplanted the rest of my identity. I had strange priorities. I'd done a very poorly thought out thing. I'd taken up poetry. To my mates, I was a living, breathing secret, hidden from them in a conspiracy of shadows. But out there at midnight, I felt that I was so full with light that I might overflow or explode. Like I was a secret soon to be revealed. One of the poets that I saw as a predecessor of mine, a Roman, compiled as many stories as he could about metamorphosis he'd seen. He'd understood that everything that exists can become so entranced by other possibilities that they spontaneously transform themselves to pursue another life. As far as I have figured it, no creature seems more prone to this change than ourselves so it was hardly surprising to find that the following morning I'd turned myself into a white hawk and soared off to see things from a higher plane. That was quite exquisite, and I'd never regret it. But then I came back again, and from a hawk I turned myself into a skink, a sliver of lizard that swelled up with other secrets. And then I was a narky hen, leggy and elusive, and later a leech, a small and squirming ballerina dancing out the steps of pure desire. Now once more I am finding that winter is a chrysalis, only it's grey and not gold, but nevertheless it is a sheath, a cocoon in which I might turn into something else. I feel that I will emerge from this train carriage, from this season, as something rather different again. This morning for the first time, I got an inkling of what changes might be occurring. For example, I think that I'm becoming kinder. I worked in California with a man who paused whenever the pigeons cooed. He'd be potting zinnias and putting dahlias into bouquets when the purring would come from the shimmering throats of these birds as they went wandering through the gardens. It was like he'd passed a church, seen a cross or an icon and wanted to make some religious gesture on his body. One day I told him that I'd noticed this habit of his, and asked him what the go was. He was a, a taciturn and mistrustful Mexican who rarely let anyone get very close to him. But after a moment's thought, he began to tell me a story. He knew a woman, he said, also Mexican, but unlike him, without the necessary documents to live freely in the USA. So she had little support, only a bit of work, picking strawberries when the fruit was in season. Her son did some work at a different farm, and her daughter was in school. They had no insurance, no savings, no safety net. And the son, 21 years old, got some sort of abscess or some kind of infection in his mouth. It was something to do with his teeth, I think. Something that had started from nothing. Without incident, perhaps a a wisdom tooth growing wonky, or a cut on his gums. Anyway, it grew out of control, and they could get no help, not even any advice. They couldn't afford a dentist or to go to hospital, and the son's pain got so bad that he couldn't go to work, so he was fired. And then he died. My colleague told me that, even still, this Mexican woman, his friend, wept bitterly whenever she thought of the wasteful death of her son. And her crying sounded like this cooing that the pigeons make. We exchanged a moment of silence a sombre sort of mournful silence. And then he retreated back into himself, went back to arranging the flowers, weaving sticks of status between the dahlias, and wrapping them in a skirt of rustling crepe paper, while the California poppies sprouted their gorgeous orange heads through the cracks in the cement. And so the pigeon's melancholy trill still reminds me of all those whose lives have been destroyed by social mechanisms, by the machinations of injustice. She said she saw herself as one of those burrowing crayfish who dig deep into the soil up in the high country moors. They descend into the dark acidic layers of whatever may lie below, into peat which I'm told has the same pH as beer. Wherever they submerge themselves they leave a little chimney of mud as a marker. A conical can reminding us where they've gone. And their downwards climbing, their dirt diving, their peat mining, has a positive effect on the ecology of the landscape. These burrowers aerate the soil. Rejuvenating it. Creating better conditions for a variety of plants to thrive. So that's me, she said. A yabby going back into the bog. Returning to the unknown, clad in a colourless cloak, armoured with a flimsy grey carapace. Churning up the past. Reevaluating history, not letting it rest. Because if you do, it turns gross, she said. Becomes toxic. From what I understood, she'd go stirring up the old stories then to refresh them. And each poem that I produced, she smiled. It's like a little mud chimney. So that you know that I was there. That's where I went deep. We got to talking about Dr King's speeches. I remembered reading his description of interrelated structures, which is what he knew that he was up against. I was just a young fellow then, and I was stunned to discover that this was how it was that there's this complex of systems which exists to confer power to some and not others. To give names and rights to certain favoured persons among us and deprive the rest. That's what I mean, she said. The past is in the present. You can't begin to comprehend yourself if you don't understand history or acknowledge it. That's one axis in these structures of Martin Luther King's. There are some who'd like you to believe that it's all sutured up, cast like iron sculptures, that these events have happened already and they're done. But that's not the case. And so I'm looking for the threads, she said looking for where they're starting to fray. And soon enough I'll unpick it and bring these structures down. I once met an old fella in the city. And he said, See all these tons of concrete and glass? It's just a scab. Under it, there's still the land and the ancestors. He could all spring back up again and start dancing. Underneath, there's a truth that's thrummin'. Sometimes if you go to the park and put your ear to the dirt, you hear it. Or to a stray gum tree that's been left to grow in the suburbs. You can catch it in the wind too. It's everywhere, really even here under the bitumen and bricks. Sometimes I get the feeling you could just wipe it all away with the back of your hand. He acted out that gesture. I imagined him swatting down a statue to see what was beneath it. Just got to knock it off like a scab. Now where the burrowing crayfish do their work, button grass grows. These big mounds of bronze strands, hard lances of sedge with, in summer, white globes of flowers on long stalks, like so many nodding heads. Under these tussocks, all sorts of critters live clandestine existences. Like native rodents, terrestrial parrots, infinite insects. On an overcast day, you might say that the button grass looks monotonous. It turns sort of colourless, without luster, and its form repeats for countless hectares all the way to the horizon. Yet when you know what's beneath you, you can only think of it as miraculous. So it was with that poet that day. As we sat on the porch of a hut, looking out on such a moor, for some hours, as the sun went down, in silence, thinking on all the stories we couldn't see, trying to catch in the breeze those songs that come like springs from subterranean sources, listening, listening. and hearing the cracks and creaks of the building. Keeping an ear out for those weaknesses in the joints and struts, scrutinizing these structures that seem so permanently assembled, yet which have started to rot, and will someday collapse, will be dismantled, and subsequently leave us cross-legged on the earth, drawing blueprints in the dirt, mapping out how to start again. And I think then that this poet friend will put her head up from a mud shoot, having done her hard work, changing the past as we see it in the present, a burrowing crayfish aerating the soil from which everything in the moorland grows. And I'll still be sitting here in the dark. Trying to cultivate the seeds that grow the most beautiful words.